Welcome to the U.S. Max Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Max fellow Charlotte Gonzalez discusses the impacts of climate change on farming in Mexico. In her talk titled "Evaluating the Resilience of Mexican Farming to Climate Change." Thank you. I'm a fellow, last year's fellow, and I didn't present my seminar because I was always away. I put together a story with some of the preliminary data that we have from this project. So um, this project is basically trying to evaluate the resilience of Mexican farming systems to climate change. And I am doing it not only by myself, but I am uh, part of a team of uh, professors. Um, one is Navin Roman Kuti in the University of British Columbia. He's, he works with um, food systems across the world. Another person is Jen, um, Jennifer Burney. She's a professor here working also in food security. And uh, Professor uh, Gordon McCord has also joined the team. Um, so this is not only my project, but it is a joint project with the University of British Columbia, University of, of uh, California. Um, and I'm kind of getting into agriculture for the first time in my research um, agenda. So. I'm not completely proficient, and if you have questions and I don't know how to answer, I can get back to you. The idea is to examine the resilience of Mexican farming systems to climate change, and more importantly, to identify the key underlying drivers. I mean, we are assuming that we are going to find some places who are resilient, or they have shown resilience to climate change. Um, those places that show this promise are called bright spots. Basically, what we are trying to figure out is there is some areas in Mexico who have been able to maintain productivity despite climate variability. We not only want to do that, we want to know how is that they are doing it. Trying to figure out ways to generate this resilience, to create this resilience uh, in, other in other sites of Mexico. Um, the idea is that after identifying the drivers of crop system resilience to climate change, we will be able to create a resilient Mexican agriculture. So it sounds easy, but why are we doing this? Over the last 50 years, despite that we all say that we need to produce more food, more food, more food, over the last 50 years, we have been very good at keeping pace uh, with population growth by producing enough food for everyone. So there might be some people who will argue that we don't have enough food, and there are some other researchers that will say that we have enough food, it's just a matter of distribution and equality. In any case, we are good at producing food. But we have some problems. I mean, it's not only a problem that we have, in some instances, um, reached the maximum yield possible for our crop, but there is also a problem of climate change. So climate change represents a new challenge for agriculture. Among other things that generate climate change, is not only that it's going to be hotter weather or less rain, it's also that the variability of the climate is going to change. It's going to increase this variability. So, that means that there is going to be more extreme weather events and growing season changes. Extreme weather <coughs> is going to change crop seasons, uh, growing seasons. It's also a problem that is being generated by the agriculture. I mean, agriculture has emissions who have helped to create the changes that we are seeing now in climate, but it's also a receiver of those changes. It's also someone who doesn't benefit from those changes in most of the cases. So. Why are we interested in doing this for Mexico? Well, Mexico has a vast heterogeneity in climate 
and very large um, areas with dry, with dry land. So if you're Mexicans or if you think that Mexico, Mexico is a um, tropical country, news, it's not a tropical country. We are not dominated by vast tropical forest and mountain forest or temperate forest. We are basically a dry land country. So that means that we go from the, so we go from the hyper arid in here, which is one of the most arid area in the whole North America, and we go to the extreme wet areas in here, where you have 800 millimeters of rain around eight months a year. Along that, what we see is that this aridity that is for most of the country is broken by some of the sierras. So if you are familiar with Mexico, you will, and if you're not, I'm going to tell you. So this is the area of the Sierra Madre Occidental, the Sierra Madre Oriental, the Sierra Madre Transversal. We have sierras all over. And those are the sierras who break the aridity pattern. And then we have an area, it's not very extensive, but it's very productive area with tropical forest, um, humid tropical forest. So because of these characteristics, Mexico is not strange to the problems of climate change. It's actually one of the countries who is going to be hit the most, along with India, is one of those countries that are, we are just in that part of the world where climate change is going to affect productive systems and all systems in general. Very hard. So what does the climate model set for Mexico? So Mexico is going to be affected by more frequent and severe drought over the next 30 years. So this is something that all the climate models agree on. The precipitation will decrease across most of the country, so also that is not disputed. This is going to happen in at least this, what, happen, what, this, what the climate model said. But there is going to be a severe reduction in the most important food producer states, Sinaloa, Michoacán, Jalisco, Iber, Veracruz, Tabasco, the places basically they feed Mexico. Um, these are the places where we're going to be hit the most by reduction of uh, precipitation and increase in temperatures. So we are not only concerned about the consistent warming and drying trends, but also that is going to happen heavily during the growing season, the, the main growing season in Mexico. I mean, Mexico produces the whole year. But the main growing season is uh, spring, summer, and it's where most of the country produces food. And in this period of, the, period of time, there's going to be an increase in minimum temperatures and decrease in the months, not the amount of rain, but the months that there is rain. So that means that the places where we grow food are going to have a reduction in the growing season with the optimal conditions. The models predict an increase in minimum temperatures up to 3.5 centigrade. That means that the lower temperature that you get on the day, on, during the day, which is, depends what part of the country, if you're in La Paz, never. But if you are in Veracruz, then you get it around 4, 4 a.m. in the morning and 7 a.m. in the morning that temperature is going to increase. So why is that important? This is very important. Because many of the crops respond not to the maximum temperatures, not to the highest temperature. If, if you have a high of 30 and you are going to get onto 33, the crop is not going to be that bad. The problem is that if you have a minimum on 27 and it's going to go up all the way to 30, the crops respond to that much more than the higher temperatures. So with this, the GM models for example, for the rain-fed corn in Mexico, which is 95% of the country, the models predict a decline of 30% of the production, well, of the yields, in the more important parts of Mexico, which is the south and the northeast. And we are already seeing a negative response. What's the time frame for this again? The models? Yeah. Between 30 and 100 years. 
but this one is for 30 years. We already seen a negative response of the wheat in the most important producer produce, production areas of wheat, which is the Yaqui Valley and the Mexicali Valley, where there is a lot of production for wheat. We are seeing that there is a reduction in yields responding to the increase in minimum temperatures in those regions. What happens in Mexico? Well, most of the research in Mexico is focused on maize and wheat. And we know maize because maize is basic in Mexico. They focus usually on the strategies that have intense focus, uh, technological solutions, intense focus on technological solutions, basically. How can we improve the irrigation systems? How can we start with more tractors? How can we give more fertilizers, more improved seeds? But they also work with climate smart agriculture, which basically is a bundle of research that helps to transform agricultural systems into something that is more adapted to climate change, which is very important and very good, but there is, it's not the only thing that it needs to be done. There is very little methodological empirical analysis on the potential effect of different farm management practices to mitigate the risk of climate change. That means that there is knowledge that exists within the producers that is not being used. There is some information in there. There's a lot of people working, working with corn, for example. How many races of corn do we have in Mexico? Well, so far, reported 60. What are the areas with more productivity in corn? What are the areas with more diversity in corn? There is a lot of that research, but there is nothing that really works at the national level management practices and the knowledge that there already might exist in there. So our question basically is, are there some management practices in current Mexican farming system that might have a higher capacity to cope with predicted impacts of climate change? This is what we want to know right now. So Mexico hosts a diverse array of ecosystems that combined with their long history of settlements in Mexico and their cultural diversity have generated a diverse agroecological reality. So what I'm proposing is to use this agricultural, agroecological reality to understand the adaptations in agricultural practices specifically and how they are coping with climate variability. Because Mexico is so varied from north to south and to, from west to east, we assume that there is a lot of knowledge and it's been proved that there is a lot of knowledge of how to produce food, right? So there is production of food all over the country from the very arid to the very wet areas. So, we are proposing to use that knowledge or to understand with that knowledge how can it be applied to other places. So how do we grow food in Mexico? So this is a map with agriculture that pre is present in Mexico using INEGI database, a spatial database. So there is practically agriculture in most of the country. These are the areas who can be seen from the space or through um, photographs. So we grow everywhere. And I'm sure that if we grow in much more places than we can see in here, but they are not reported because we cannot see them from space. They are smaller areas, right? So we have two types of agriculture. We have irrigated and rain-fed agriculture. So the most prominent is the rain-fed agriculture. Most of the areas uh, that produce food are under that condition. We have 26 million hectares as an agricultural potential, and we only use 22% of them. And we have only well, less than 30% of that area with irrigation. Where, where does the irrigation occur? So most of the irrigation is related to the dry, dry areas. So if you remember, this is a similar map from the aridity map that I showed you, right? So 
the darker you get, the more rain you have. So we focus our efforts on irrigation on the arid and <coughs> semi-arid areas. Why? For obvious reasons. There is no uh, superficial water. So we have to pump it under the, from under the ground. So, for example, continuing with how Mexico produces, the size of the farm, we don't call it farm, but productive units, it changes, it varies from north to south. We have smaller productive unit sizes in the south and the center of Mexico, usually less than five hectares. And then as we go to the north part of the country, we have larger areas, larger producing, producing units, which is around 10 hectares as a mean. Who produces the food? Well, according with a couple of researchers, we have 46% of the food that we produce in Mexico in areas with, in productive units that have less than five hectares of area. And 36 of the food producing, of the food that is produced, is in areas with five to 10 hectares. And only the 18% is producing areas which is larger than 10 hectares. And that usually happens in the plains in the northwest of Mexico, agribusiness, most of them. So we have 5.3 million productive units, but only 3.8 of them are what we consider a successful agroecological business. What is the area that they use? It's not clear. Data is all over. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you what's the area that they use, but they have an average, they have $30,000 of revenue per year. But 73% is subsistence and the revenue is less than $883 per year. So most of, the, most of the food that is produced in Mexico is for subsistence or local commerce. And 77% of the fertilizers and pesticides are imported. So now this was not like this before. In the 60s, Mexico created their own company for fertilizers, along with the Green Revolution that increased the productive capacity of Mexico. So it soared. It was amazing what the change was. But since the 80s, the production of fertilizers and pesticides in Mexico has declined, and we have increasingly been using more fertilizers and the more modern fertilizers come from outside. So we have irrigation, mainly in arid regions. We have a bipolar agriculture. It means that we have areas who are irrigated with high productivity. Usually they, they use more technology. And then we have rain fed, which is spread along the country, which is not as productive and they don't rely on as much technology. And we have two agricultural seasons spring and summer and fall and winter. So we have areas in Mexico that look like Iowa, and then we have places in Mexico that looks like 1800. They have completely different systems of production. Their food, the production of the food goes to different uh, people, and apparently the ones who are feeding most of the country are this kind of production. Charlotte, could you tell us how come were you able to do those maps? Mexico? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's um, several, several um, databases, but most of them come from INEGI. Some of them are international databases, and some of them are databases from researchers. For example, all the work for aridity, uh, they come from uh, research that has done in Arizona. And the data for agriculture type comes from INEGI, from the land use and vegetation maps. And the information for mean annual precipitation um, I believe I use group of researchers that put together the Conagua data. Now that we want to see where are the bright spots, which is the main focus of our, of our research, what are those areas who are able to 
maintain productivity despite the climate variability. So how did I do it? So I use different databases. I use, I use a Sagarpa CIAP database on crop production. This database just became available in recent years. It was not available before, despite what everyone would say. And it was very difficult to obtain this data. You will have either data by crop, data by year, or data by municipality. So putting it together was a pain. Finally, three or four years ago, they started to put the raw databases available. So it will contain all the municipalities, all the states, all the years, and all the crops. Now, cleaning that was a big problem, and it took us most of the year. The data that they contain is basically the production for each crop, the seasonality, if it's irrigated or if it's rain-fed, the yield, the production, and the area that uses, that is being sown and harvested. So since 1980, we have great information. And from 1980 to 26, we have information at the state level. And only since 2003 and probably 2017 by now, the information is by municipalities. So the smaller area that we can get information to start looking at what are those bright spots is a municipality data. So we tried to do something with the agricultural surveys from Minehi, but they were not used. First, because we don't have the information for those that are digitally available. We it would have to be required to go into Inehi and review those surveys by hand. So that was very complicated. And then we didn't have after 94, before 94, we didn't have any information on the data that we needed, so we couldn't use those. So we had to work with municipalities. I used Inehi land use and vegetation maps for the types of agriculture. Um, also the Inehi spatial maps that show the administrative boundaries and historical changes of those boundaries. I used some of the Inehi agricultural surveys for agricultural practices that is not included in this project yet, in this part of the project and the publication from CIAP on how the, the food production happens in Mexico to identify the technological use. Now, the technology used in Mexico, they don't tell you, for example, how much fertilizer is being used. They tell you what's the area that is where it's being used. So you only have areas, you don't have amounts. And then we also use the Conagua data from weather stations that Gordon was so kind to give me already for municipal level. So what the first thing that we did was to aggregate the crops at municipal level. So we have to clean all the information from the agricultural data that we had that it basically tells you that we have 64 types of tomatoes because it's been collected a, a long time, for a long time, and there is different types of tomatoes because they go to the field and they ask, what type of tomato is this one? So they say, tomate rojo, jitomate bola, Jitomate bola con pintitas. So all those are recorded. So you have, well, I had to review the entire database by hand and try to figure out, okay, all these that say tomatoes is tomatoes. But this one that says tomato is not tomato, it's tomatillo. Mm -hmm. And it's this different type of tomatillo. And this other thing that they call tomato raw is not tomato at all. So checking that was a pain, and it took us a long time. But we finally got it. So I can tell you that we have like 100 types of chiles in Mexico. They are all the same species, but it is a complication of working with this data. I mean, it's very useful once that you have cleaned it, but cleaning it is a pain. Well, you should know because you work with a lot of <laughs> survey data. So, and then we started the agricultural polygons to identify if it was rain-fed or if it was irrigation in each municipality. So one of the problems that we have is that if we want to do any kind of analysis that is spatially explicit, 
the local resolution that we right now have is information at the municipal level. But of course, agriculture doesn't happen across the municipality. It happens on those areas where it's only agriculture. So the only way of knowing specifically where the food is being produced in the municipalities is if we have information, spatial information of those. And that one is only given by INEHI and these maps that tell you, the map that I showed you, where it tells you if it's rain-fed or if it's irrigated. Now we have those areas, but we don't know exactly in where of those polygons the food is being produced. For example, we don't know where maize is being produced. And that is very difficult to know. But at least we have those specific areas in those municipalities where food is being produced. But that is for another project, another part of the project. Right now we are just going to talk about production at municipality level. So then we created maps of municipalities from 2000 to 2017 to identify what were those changes. Because if we have data since 2003, some of the municipalities have changed. And we were very worried about boundaries and the change of names because we have this very strange thing where we have, by INEHI, we have each municipality has an idea code, but it's only used by INEHI in some cases but not by any other institution. So the institutions that we have, they have for CIAP and Sagarpa, they use the names of the municipality. Not only those names have changed, but they have typos. Another big problem for the data. So we have to organize the data with this and the CIAP data. So we cross-reference everything, and after months and months of working together, <laughs> we finally got the maps with the names, with the IDs, with the crop by each municipality. And then we harmonize, and then we merge the data, not only by municipality, but also with the climate data from temperature and precipitation. So now we have a very interesting database from 2003 until 2016 that gives you crop production by municipality, by growing season, by type of agriculture, by area harvested, sown, production, and yield. And of course, now we have to know how to analyze the data. I mean, we are trying to see if there is some municipalities who have done extremely well in producing food despite of climate variability. So how do we do that? So after some thinking, we decided to go to the basics. Basically, we created something that we call resilience index with small r. This is wrong. It's a small r, like here which basically analyzes the coefficient of variation for yield and precipitation, just to check how tightly related they are. So what we are looking at are those areas that have values more than one, which means that they are more resilient so far. These are the areas that we, that we want. And we are assuming that yields follow the variation of precipitation. So we assume that, but we don't assume it just because we want. This is what the <coughs> research has shown. Yields usually follow, variation of yields follow variation of precipitation. So what we want to find are those areas where you have numbers of one who are in this area of our graph that mean that they are productive and resilient. They have maintained production on the average, at least, despite the changes in precipitation. So looking at how maize behaves in a very short period of time, how maize behaves related to precipitation. So production of maize drops when precipitation drops and increases when precipitation increases. This is for most of the country where rain-fed maize is being produced. So what we want to find ideally 
is aligning here of production, not precipitation, but production, where you will have a highly productive municipalities despite of the variations in precipitation. Of course, this is like finding the holy grail, right? You will find like the solution for the food problems of the world. Obviously, it's not like that, but that's what we aim for. So what is that we found? Well, first, let me tell you that Mexico has 96% um, of his municipios grow maize. So basically, we grow maize all over the country for the, summer, for the spring and summer season. For the winter, fall and winter season, we have 52% of the country grows maize. So the areas that have higher yields are the areas in red. The areas that have lower yields are the areas in deep blue. So you can see especially how it looks like, the production of maize in Mexico. Can you repeat the percentages again? So how much in the summer and how much? 95% of municipalities grow maize in the spring and summer. So that's why, that's when I understood yeah. the word, the phrase of sin maíz no hay país. <laughs> and why so much of the research related to agriculture focuses on maize. So everyone produces maize. I mean, this is part of, because there has been an incentive from um, the policy to produce maize, but also because it's cultural. So finally, it is true. Sin maíz no hay país. And in the case of uh, fall and winter, it's 52. So, um, so we have, for the country, we have maize yields in rain-fed areas of three tons per hectare in, in, uh, on average. And in irrigate, irrigation is more than double, it's 7.5 tonnes by hectare. So now that might seem a lot, but if we compare it to the US or Argentina, we are very low. So we have very low yields. So why do we have very low yields? This is part of the research, the ongoing research. First, because we produce different types of corns. The US produces corns for industrial uses mm -hmm. and for animal feed. They have very, they have high technological um, input areas with a lot of technology. They have a lot of fertilizer, but they also have um, improved seeds in different ways. We have in the US, we have GMOs that <coughs> include transgenic and include all the other types of uh, genetically modified organisms. So that makes it very um, productive. Argentina has exactly the same type of corn. They produce corn for industrial and animal feed purposes. Mexico produces uh, corn to eat. That means that we have corn that are more palatable. The difference in nutrition between the corn that is grown in Mexico and the corn that is grown everywhere in the world is exactly the same. The changes are very minimal, but we like corn that is palatable, that tastes good, that looks good, and then it can be eaten in different forms. So that means that we have a lot of races that are local. Like I said, we have like 60%, 60 races that have been described by now, but some researchers say that there might be up to 180 different races of corn in Mexico. So of course they are grown in this part of the country. Most of the, of the races are not um, improved seeds, but there is a lot of um, seed production companies Mexican production companies that produce uh, modified seeds, but they are not widely, widely available. And 
most of the people who produce corn for consumption, they like their own corn, so they like their own races and their own type, and that might change from town to town or from producer to producer. So that makes it very difficult to have um, technological inputs in areas where people like their own type of corn and they don't accept um, seeds that are not produced by them just because they are not palatable. But this is not like this in all the, the crops in Mexico. We have a brilliant example of what happened with wheat. Like, this is Mexico. We produce, we, are, we have higher yields of wheat than the US or Argentina. So why is this different from the corn that we produce in Mexico? Because in the 40s and 50s, Norman Burlak started to improve the seeds of wheat in Mexico. So through Simit and Texcoco, ¿cómo se llama el? Texcoco es Simit, the CG system, the CGI. Pero el del con el de Chapingo. Chapingo. Through Chapingo and Simit, he started to uh, improve the seed for for wheat, and he did something very clever. So what he did is he had, he got the seed for for the um, wheat that he was being produced in Sonora, and then he took that seed and he brought for the next season, he brought it to Texcoco. So he improved that seed in Texcoco by growing it in the fields in Texcoco, and then he took that seed to the next growing season in Sonora. So what happened there is that he adapted a seed to very different types of production and climate systems, creating a very strong seed, so strong that at least 50% of all the wheat that is sown in the country, in the world, comes directly or indirectly from this area in Mexico, from Simit. So what happens in here is that we have very good production of wheat, highly successful. So we were going to work with all the crops in Mexico, but because there are so many, we wanted to focus first on the four most important crops. So most important for what? First, that they were for human consumption, not for animal feed. Then that it was culturally important, maize, bean, and tomato, that it was important for commerce, wheat, and tomato, and that were also the more, um, the heterogeneous, uh, they were more distributed across the space in Mexico. So what we wanted were good examples of how different practices across Mexico <coughs> um, might affect the production of the food. So we have these four crops that are wide, widely available uh, for production in whole Mexico. So we calculated our resilience index so what you are looking in, in here are only the municipalities where bean, the beans are produced, all kinds of beans. Everything that is called bean, faba bean, black bean, pinto bean, all of them are aggregated into beans, okay? Because they have, the sim, they have similar um, needs for growing and they are basically the same. Um, so these are the places where we believe they are more resilient to climate variability. So basically, despite of the climate variability in the country, these areas have shown to have at least the same yield than when the 
climate is perfect for them and constant. So these are the areas. So we have 22% of the, all the municipalities where bean is produced, 22% of them, they have an R of more than one. So that shows promise. This is for beans for the summer, <coughs> the spring and summer season. Okay, so for corn, for maize, I'm going to show you summer and fall. Well, summer, spring, and fall and winter. So for Mexico, we have 60% of the municipalities show promise. We have ours above one, and 37% for the fall and winter production. What happened in the case of tomato? Tomato has 26% of these areas, of the municipalities where it's produced, that they show promise. So 26% is higher than maize. It's still pretty good. Now, tomato has one thing. Tomato in areas who are Las Arias Tomateras de Mexico, they are, high, they are high inputs, they have high inputs, and all of them are highly technological, they have high technology use and irrigation. So we are not taking into account in here irrigation, we are putting it all together, it doesn't matter if it's irrigated or not. Not yet. And then in the case of wheat, well, wheat is not doing very well, eh? So we have the main producer area of wheat, and they are not being shown in here. Why? That, that's the value of Mexicali? No, that's Tecate. Oh, that's Tecate. Where they produce wheat. Okay. So what happened here? So what happened here is that you have areas who are highly productive, but they are irrigation, and also they have had areas of severe drought that have decreased the amount of water used by irrigation. So far, that's our explanation. We'll see later on what happened there. But we do have some promise in here. We have some areas. We have 15% close to what happened with the corn. So we are still analyzing what happened here. These are the data for so far. So what I did next was to put together all the um, municipios who show promise for some of the crops. So we have that 32 of the municipalities using all the crops show some promise of resilience. But if you want to see how many of those have at least two crops who are doing really well in that area, they have, you have 10% of that, 10% um, of municipalities for spring and summer. Then for fall and winter, we have 54% of all municipalities where there is promise that we have our R's, our resilience index that is above one, and 27% when you want two crops that are in the same municipality who are performing, performing well. Why is, why is uh, substantially better fall and winter because of the rainy season? Well, no, we don't know yet. What I suspect is that in the case of winter, we have lower temperature, so if you have a crop who has, who has problems with high temperatures and lower rain, then most of the areas have rain during May and October. If you have less rain in that is the growing, the most important growing season. But if you have crops who are adapted or developed for areas with not much irrigation, with lower temperatures, and with wind or with no rain, then you have um, a crop that is more resilient to the other changes that happen in summer that are not happening that strong in winter. Still, we have to look into that more um, 
and see if that's really what is happening. Those are my first initial um, analysis. Um, so we have some areas that we can take a peek and see. We have at least 10% of our municipalities for these four crops and 27 uh, for the case of fall and winter. So those are the areas that initially we want to take a peek and see what are they doing that things are going well. But what if, want, what if we want everything? Um, what if we want areas who are performing well, but they don't have irrigation? So those are the areas that we are interested in because we are seeing that irrigation is going to be reducing time, not in amount, but reducing time. So what happens if we have less irrigation and we don't have enough rain? So what areas, what municipalities are those? 50% of the country, this is aggregating both seasons. 50% of the country or 20% of the municipalities, sorry, they have promised resilience with no irrigation, right? So you have one crop and five crops that are doing well. So there is only one municipality here who has five crops. They are performing fairly well. Remember, this is only four crops. We have a database of 200 crops that we have to check, but this is the four crops. There is some promise, but what if we want more? So we now want areas who don't have irrigation, who show promise to adaptability to climate change, but also we want high yields. Well, now things become more difficult. We have only 12 for the spring, so for summer and spring, and for fall, winter, we have nine municipalities. Only those areas have what we will call bright spots, areas that have above average yields that can withstand climate variability and that have no irrigation. Of course, this is what we are looking for in the entire country. This is only four crops, but we also have to do other things. We have to check what are the differences between the north and the south because we don't like irrigation in the north as a way of uh, increasing your adaptability to climate change because the northern part of the country doesn't receive any rain, which means that it doesn't recharge the ground well, the groundwater wells, which means that you don't have a sustainable resource. But what happened in the northern, in the southern and central part of Mexico, not this, but this, is that the rain is more or less a given for at least part of the year. That means that the water availability is more sustainable in time. So maybe what we should be looking is, those areas are just lost for us. Those areas are not, they don't have resilience. We have to find other ways to find resilience. But in here, we can increase the areas because we can add areas who have some form of rain, some form of irrigation that is sustainable in time because there is recharging here and we have um, surface water, running water. These are my results. This is only for maize, sorry. This is only for corn, not for four crops, just for maize. So what's next? Well, we are advancing in identifying the bright spots, the bright spots in Mexican systems. We have to work with the rest of crops and run some statistical tests that not only will tell us if our results right now is statistically significant, but also if we should do something else. And then we have to identify the underlying drivers of these resilience that we are seeing in here, and then try to identify if it can be used to design resilient crop systems in the future. So basically, this falls into the management practices part. This part we haven't done at all. What do I need now? Well, I need an institution with funding, students, <laughs> <laughs> that will take me to keep going into this. So far, I'm working with Gordon, Jen, and Naveen Ramankuti to keep working on this, but we are going slow. So if anyone wants to take over,
The data is ready. You don't have to clean it anymore. It's all there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast, the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.